your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you did not bring your Bible with you, there is a blue Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, you'll find Acts chapter 2 on page 1691 in that blue Bible. I'd love for you to pull that out uh, as we begin our message time today. As you find that, let me also share a word of welcome with you, especially if you're a guest here today. Uh, my name is David. I serve as a senior pastor, and uh, thanks for being here if you are a guest, and, and thanks for allowing me the chance uh, to share with you as we uh, work through the second message of this series. If you're here last week, you might be thinking, well, this is exactly what we talked about last week because we were in Acts chapter 2. We were in the beginning of Acts 2. We're going to look uh, at the end of that uh, in just a moment as we continue this series. Uh, but let me begin uh, by restating a principle that we shared last week as we think about what does it mean to be a great family. Here's what we said, that great families are those that establish values uh, those that pursue shared vision, and those that help one another maintain healthy direction. And, and I shared that with you not only because I wanted to inspire you, I wanted to encourage you to think about how you are investing in your own family, how you are working to help your family be a great family, but also because this is what the heart of this series is about. It's about how we, as a family of faith together, we want to be a great family. We want to be a family that has established values, that is pursuing together a shared dream, and that we're helping one another maintain healthy direction. And that's really what this series is about. Over the course of, of these six weeks, we're talking about what kind of family we want to be, what kind of family we believe God has called us to be. Uh, the other thing that we talked about last week was just the church. What does it mean to be the church? We, we, we said we often use this word uh, in, in referring to the place where we gather together. We talk about the church building, a, a, a physical location. But when you look at Acts 2, Acts 2, this is what you see when you think about what the church started as. That the church began as a movement of God. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It was God's idea. This, this whole thing called the church. The church was God's response, the tool that God gave to humanity to fulfill what Jesus asks us to do. Jesus says, go and change the world, one life at a time. That's how the gospels end. The church is the movement in which that, that task is fulfilled. And that movement is the, where, where participants are enabled by the Spirit to live in ways that they could not and would not live before. So as we participate in the movement of God that is the church, the Spirit enables us to do things that we couldn't do before. That's a change of behavior but also things we wouldn't even think about doing before. It changes our desires. We begin to live in new ways, the ways that we never have even thought of living before. We begin engaging those as we engage the kingdom way of life that Jesus taught us to live. We saw this last week in the very beginning of Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes on the original disciples, and they begin to do things they couldn't do before. 
Peter gets up in Jerusalem. You'll remember, that's the bulk of Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 14, wrapping up in verse 40. Peter, Peter preaches a sermon in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, less than two months after the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, Peter declares Jesus crucified and resurrected, Lord and Messiah. Now, one of the things I said to you was this was... I mean, this is crazy. I mean, this is, this is a, a way to get killed uh, in what Peter was doing here in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to look at what happened after that. What was the result of this sermon that we find in the middle of Acts chapter 2? So if you look at verse 41, let's look there first. This is, this is the response of the people to this message. Again, we're less than two months after the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So you start in the beginning of Acts chapter 2 with a group of disciples who received the Spirit. Peter, enabled by the Spirit, stands up, proclaims Jesus crucified and resurrected, and 3,000 people are baptized. The church grows. Now, the very end of Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, Luke, the author here, provides us a summary of kind of what life was like for the first men and women who said yes to Jesus. Here, here's what he says. They, referring to these, uh, this, this first, first followers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, real quick here, apostles in Acts is another way of referring to the original disciples. So don't be confused by that. That's who the apostles are. Uh, the whole community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So again, this is the very beginning of the church. The very beginning, and what Luke tells us in verse 42 is that in the very beginning of the church, these first followers committed themselves to two things. The first was the apostles' teaching. Remember, these are the people who had spent three years with Jesus. They had walked with him. They had heard him teach. They now begin to share that teaching with these next followers. So they committed themselves first to the apostles' teaching, and then the second thing that Paul sa- or that Luke says is they committed themselves to fellowship. And, and this is what I want to focus on, this word fellowship. Oh, I want us to think about what do we mean, what did Luke mean by this word fellowship? Because obviously this is a big deal. Like this is one of two things that these first followers of Jesus committed themselves to. So what in the world do we mean by fellowship. Well, if you're a church person, you've heard this word before, okay? And this is one of those words that you heard before, and you thought, well, that's kind of a nice church word that we use in church. We don't talk about it anywhere else. It's it's a little ambiguous. You're not quite sure what it means. If you're not a church person, you're thinking, oh, that's one of those church words that church people use, and they don't even really know what it means. I sure don't know what it means. It's probably not a word that you used in a conversation this week. I mean, if you invited anyone over to watch the game today, guys, okay? If you did, you did not invite them over and say, would you like to come have some fellowship with me? 
If you did, it was only to give your Christian friends a hint as to what beverages would not be served while watching that game. Because it's just a nice church word, you know? What, is it, what do we mean by, by fellowship? Well, I, I count myself as one who was raised in the church. My dad uh, is a pastor. I was raised in, in small country churches, and these people were serious about fellowship. They were so serious that they had a, a, a place in the church that was dedicated to fellowship. It was called the fellowship hall, okay? And, and here's why it was called the fellowship hall, because it was a hall and it was where you went to fellowship, okay? That was the deal. You couldn't fellowship anywhere else. No fellowshipping out here. You have to go to the fellowship hall. It was a big room and it was there that you went to fellowship. And here's what fellowship looked like in those small country churches. Fellowship looked like food, food, lots of, lots of food. It, it was often, and, and in some of those settings, it was something we did every single week. We came together for church, we sang hymns, we shared an offering, we said some prayers, the preacher preached, and then we went and had some food in the fellowship hall. We had a cover dish dinner in the fellowship hall. It's how church used to work. Here's what that looked like if that wasn't a part of your experience. If you've never uh, experienced a covered dish dinner, this is, this is what's involved, okay? So at a covered dish dinner, you're going to have about 12 sides of baked beans, okay? <laughs> and you're going to have uh, four or five green bean casseroles, several different variations of macaroni and cheese, and a ham, okay? That's what you need for a covered dish dinner. If there's more people, the ratios pretty much stay the same. So what you learned as a kid was get in the front of the line. Get in the front, otherwise you're going to have a plate of baked beans and maybe a piece of ham. To this day, I do not like baked beans and I don't like ham because I had lots and lots of covered dish dinners uh, as a kid. But that was, that was what fellowship was. It was, it was get together and we're going to eat some food. And, and, and you get the sense that, okay, if it's one of the two things that these first followers dedicated themselves to, this, this word fellowship, it's got to mean something more than that, okay? It's got to mean something more than just getting together and eating some food. I mean, there's some good stuff there, but what do we mean, uh, what did Luke mean when he's talking about the word fellowship? Well, here's, here's the first thing you have to recognize. Luke didn't use the word fellowship. It's not because your Bible's wrong, okay? So you go, oh my gosh, I gotta take this back, Mardell's, what are you doing? No, no, no. It's because Luke didn't speak English. He didn't write in English, he wrote in Greek. And what you have is an English translation of the Greek text. And this is an example of what often happens when you are translating from one language to the next. You maybe have heard the phrase lost in translation. Sometimes there is meaning that we find in one language. It's really hard to convey in a different language. So let me help you out. Let me just show you, let me show you the word that, that he used. All right, does that help? You got it? All right. <laughs> So this is the Greek word that, that, uh, that Luke uses here, and here's kind of the English way of saying it. He, the, the word is koinonia, okay? And there's really not one word in the English language that captures 
what Luke means and what this, this word meant in the Greek. Again, this, this, this comes up a lot in the translation of, of the scriptures. For, for instance, maybe you don't know this, the word love in English. We use the word love, and when we need to talk about something, we say love. That's the only word that we have. Well, in Greek, there's three words for love. And so when you're looking in the scriptures and we find the word love, there's, there's three different meanings that may be behind the word uh, that the writer uses. Well, koinonia, well, what, is, what exactly does this word mean? Again, one word doesn't capture it, so I want to give you several words that may help you wrap your head around. Well, what exactly does, does Luke mean by, by koinonia? So, so first is this, this notion of community. Okay, and this isn't like these are the people who live in my neighborhood community, okay, the, the, the other families on the cul-de-sac. This is, this is community in the sense of these are people who have shared values, shared vision, shared dreams, and they are sharing life together based on those com- that common vision and those common values. There's this sense of ongoing participation in one another's lives. Participation that is beyond, oh, I saw you at church. Hey, how was your week? But participation that is built on an awareness of not only someone's hopes and dreams, but also their hurts and their struggles. A, a, a participation that implies more than just casual conversation, but a participation that is real and authentic and, and raw in some ways. There is this sharing not only of, hey, here's the thing that's going on in my life. But notice what the text says here. But there's a sharing of resources. There's a sense of if somebody has a need here, just come up at the end. We're going to take care of that need. We're going to make sure that everyone in our community is cared for because you belong to us and we belong to one another. There's a relationship that, again, it's not a casual relationship. It's not a, oh, I think I recognize you. You sit on the other side of the room. No, no, no. There's a, there's a relationship where there is a sense of intimacy, the sense of vulnerability, the sense of openness to what others are are going through in their life and it's a mutual relationship it's a relationship and not only am I giving to you but you are giving to me we have one another's back these are people who have locked arms together these are people who are saying whatever life throws at us we are going to walk through it together so it's more than just showing up and having a meal and having some nice casual conversation, there is this deep sense of connection, of shared, sharing life together, of people who recognize their need of one another and the needs that others have of them, and a deep commitment that these people lived out for one another. And here's what is interesting to me as we look, again, this is the very beginning of the church. These people have no idea what they're doing. They're just getting started. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because they had to figure out what this whole following Jesus thing meant. They didn't distribute Bibles. Just everybody read Matthew, come back next week, we'll talk about it. No, no, no. This is the very beginning. And yet, in the very beginning, here's what these first followers understood. They understood that saying yes to Jesus was not only about a new relationship with God, it was also about a new relationship with one another. That, that, to, that to make a commitment to God, to make a commitment to Jesus, was also to make a commitment to one another. It was to make a commitment to the community. You couldn't just say, hey, I like this Jesus thing, but 
I don't really want the rest of it. No, it was all together. It was a commitment to the community. Here's another way of saying that. The commitment to Jesus was also a commitment to koinonia. To this sharing of life together in this very real and very raw way. And here's what I want us to notice today. We just, again, think about this is the very beginning. What they understood and what that meant for them over the course of their life in the first generation as it passed to the second generation, as the second generation gave way to the third generation. As you think about the first several hundred years of the church, here's what I want us to recognize. We would not be here today if our mothers and fathers in the faith had not made these commitments. They wouldn't be here because they really needed one another. I mean, they faced things that you and I can't even imagine because of the commitment they had made to Jesus. And that's why over and over again, if you read through the New Testament, read the letters that the early leaders wrote to these churches, over and over and over again, this consistent theme, care for one another, encourage one another, build one another up. When someone else is falling down, lift them up. Don't let anyone get left behind. Care for one another. Be there for one another. You are a family. You are a family. Lock arms with one another because you need one another. And we wouldn't have been here. We would not be here if they hadn't made this commitment to the community that they established together. It was an essential part of their life. Would not have survived without it. And we're here because of what they, what they committed themselves to. Not only to God. God, we want to live with you in a new way. They made the immediate connection that to live with God in a new way meant they had to live with one another in a new way as well. Another way of saying this is this movement was not built for the sake of helping you establish casual relationships with one another, but for inviting people to live in deep community with one another, where they were cared for and they were participating in caring, nurturing, encouraging, strengthening others as well. Now with that in mind, let me just offer you a few observations about how we tend to think about koinonia today. How you and I, as we think about the church, this is just common, these are my observations about how we commonly think about this. Uh, Here's the first, that koinonia is what so many of us want, but so few of us have. I mean, my guess is that there's not going to be a lot of people who are here this weekend who in listening to what the early church uh, uh, Christians shared with one another, the commitment they had to one another, it's not going to be many people who are like, ah, I'm not, nah, I don't really want that. I don't need any encouragement in my life. I just want to be by myself. Nobody talk to me. You know, if that's you, there's other problems. I mean, well, you can deal with those. But, but most of us, right, I mean, you're thinking, man, that'd be nice. <laughs> that'd be nice. There's, there's times I need someone to lean on in my life. I mean, many of us, you, you, you hear this and you think, oh, wow, that'd be so great. I would, I would love to have that in my life. I'd love, I'd love for this type of community to be present in my children's lives. And yet so few of us have it. And there's a reason why. And the reason why is not the reason that you think it is. It's not the first reason. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. There's a, there's a mindset that we have 
that is the real reason why so few of us have it. And the mindset is that we see as optional what God has shown us is essential. I mean, at the end of the day, most of us, we hear this and we think, wow, cherry on top, that'd be great. Love the icing, but I don't have time, right? I mean, that's what most of us would think. Well, I'm just, I'm just too busy. I just, my, my life is, you don't understand, you don't understand, Pastor. I mean, I have a full calendar. I mean, everything is full. Everything, my life is full. I'm running a personal taxi service that loses money every single day. I, there's no way. I, I, can't, I could not do this. I can't make time for others. I can't invest in because I'm just so busy. My task list is full. These kids are driving me crazy. I can't do all this stuff. There's no way. But if that's you, okay, if that's your pushback, if you think, oh, that sounds nice, but I'm just so busy, here's a question. How many of you drank water yesterday would you please raise your hands anybody anybody drink water yet wow all of you did smart people how many of you had food yesterday it's good it's good how many of you slept in the last 48 hours or so all of you slept you're so smart why did you do all those things because you know how essential it is you wouldn't be here without it right you, you, you make time for the things that are essential in your life. But the things that are optional are the things that you say, well, well maybe, maybe next season I'll have time to invest in that. And we don't realize how vulnerable we are because of how isolated we have, we've allowed ourselves to become. And yet over and over again in the scriptures, I mean, from the very beginning to the end, constant, constant theme, you cannot do life alone. If you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. And a fall is coming. A crash is coming. If you are doing life alone. On Tuesday morning, uh, my wife was in the kitchen with the kids, getting breakfast ready, uh, getting lunches ready. I walk in. And uh, she says to me, she says, did you have a bad day yesterday? And she's kind of smiling as she asks me this question. And I think, well, that's kind of odd that she's smiling. Well, and I said, well, why, why are you asking if I had a bad day? And she said, well, I just want, she said, I just wanted you to know that I, I found the bread in the refrigerator and your coffee cup in the freezer. So <laughs> she said, I just, I thought maybe you had a bad day. And I said, well, I, I kind of had a bad day. I did, actually. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for noticing that. Now, here's why I share that with you. Number one, I want you to have full confidence in your church. I just want you to know that the leader of your church, he's got it all together. <laughs> no, no big deal, right? Yeah, nothing, nothing wrong here. But here's, here's the other reason I want to share that with you. Because I want you to hear that one of the things I have learned in my life is that one of the primary avenues through which God works in my life, God's grace comes into my life, God's spirit speaks into my life, is through my wife. Because she knows me, and she loves me, and she shares life with me. And so she sees things that other people may not see. She recognizes things that other people may not recognize. She knows that when the bread's in the refrigerator and the coffee cup's in the freezer, there's something going on. And so she, out of grace and love, can speak into that. In other words, one of the things that I've learned is that when I separate myself from her, when I distance myself from her, I am, in fact, distancing myself from God. Because one of the primary ways that God works 
in our lives is through the people that we share life with. Which is why it's essential and not optional to be involved in koinonia. There's a vulnerability, there's a weakness to your life that you don't see if you are living isolated from the relationships that God wants to use to speak into your life and to bring grace into your life. It's like walking around with these blinders on all day long, not being able to see what's really, really going on in your life. And so the question I want to ask you today is, is there something in your heart, is there something in your life that is keeping you from koinonia? Is there something that is preventing you from investing in this, from opening yourself up to the community that God wants to use to bless you in your life? Here's a couple things that, that might be doing it. Again, you can say busyness, but busyness, I mean, it's really about essential and optional. It's really about are you, are you willing to say that this is something that you need in your life? And if you're not willing to say that it's something you need in your life, then it might be, this may hurt a little bit, sorry, it might be pride. And pride, according to the Bible, is not recommended. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. Let me just, let me just read you one thing. This is Psalm 10:4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. And then listen, listen carefully to verse 6. He, the prideful man, says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. Is it pride? Is it pride that says, no, 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 I've got it all together. Everything's just fine. I have full control. I'm totally relying on myself. I got everything I need. When in reality, you too have days where the bread ends up in the refrigerator and the coffee cup is in the freezer. That you don't have it near as together as you would like people to assume. Maybe, and by the way, I didn't put this in the sermon. Someone from last night did. Okay, so you can blame them. After the sermon, they came up and they said, pride's not my issue. I'll tell you what my issue is. They said, my issue is selfishness. He said, yeah, I'm busy. My life is busy. And I recognize that as my life gets busy, the only person I begin to see is me. And the only person's needs I know are mine. And when I think about my time, I think about what I need. I think about what I want to do. He said, I recognize that I'm just selfish. I'm just selfish. And part of being in a relationship is investing with others. And that takes time and that takes energy to focus on someone else besides besides me. So you can blame him. That was, that was his thought from last night. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's the fear of being known. Maybe it's the fear of being a vulnerable someone, someone knowing you're not, you're not as perfect as you would like to be. Maybe it's the fear that's developed because of a relationship that didn't go well. Because rather than being an avenue for grace in your life, it became an avenue for something much different. 
And so there is this tendency to pull back. There's this tendency to withdraw. There's this tendency to wear the mask. And everyone in this room knows that. They know what that's like. We all know what it's like to be wounded by relationships and and, and to want to pull back. But what I want to challenge you with today is the notion that when you do that, you are actually pulling back from God as well. Because one of the primary ways that God works in your life is with the people who you share life with. And if church, if church is nothing more than a place for you to develop casual relationships, then we, my friends, are doing it wrong. It is supposed to be a community of people who deeply love each other who are invested in one another and who are willing to sacrifice and serve one another. That's what we mean when we talk about the church as a family. So today what I want to challenge you to do is I want to to challenge you to search your heart and to think about anything that may be a barrier, to ask God to help you remove that, the pride that may be separating you from others, the fear of being known, the fear of being vulnerable, because there's a need in your life. There's something that God has for you that is essential for you. And avoiding the crash, avoiding the fall, avoiding what may be waiting for you, the way to avoid that may be investing yourself in koinonia, and the community that God wants to nurture your life with. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, we all know first what it's like to feel wounded. We all know, Lord, the, the expectation and anticipation that a relationship will bring blessing and the, the dread, Lord, the hurt when it brings something different than that. And, Lord, we all know, we can all look at moments in our life where we can see where in our arrogance we have missed and not fully appreciated how much we need others. So I pray, Lord, that you would work on our hearts today, that you would help us to be a faithful people, and that we would understand, Lord, that this notion of faithfulness is not only how we want to live in relationship to you, but it's also, Lord, how we want to live in relationship to one another as a family of faith. And so inspire us and encourage us to be a church that is also a family. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.